1: So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
2: Greetings. I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today, I have a returning guest for you. Uh, She is a wonderful author and editor. Uh, It's Tice Away. Uh, The book is River Cities, City Rivers published by Dumbarton Oaks in 2018. Uh, Thaisa is the Program Director of Garden and Landscape Studies at Dumbarton Oaks and a professor uh, at the University of Washington. Uh, hi, welcome to the show again. Hi, thanks. Glad to be back. Uh, let's start with uh, my favorite question. What was your motivation for uh, writing this book?
0: So this book um, was really motivated by three um Forces coming together at the same time. Um, One was an emerging interest uh, through work in climate change to think about the intersections of history and ecology in place. So how, if you think of urban environmental histories, how have cities come to be shaped by the environments they're in and how are those reality shaping the future and and climate change and all of the challenges we have at head so that was that was sort of a big concern on the table and as a historian that interested me um, the second was very specifically an increasing interest to think about how designers and historians practitioners and scholars could work together in more dynamic ways that neither um, undermine either as a service to the other. So it's not history as sort of a service of precedent for designers, nor is it designers um, just sort of, teaching historians a little bit about space, but really engaging them. And then the third was very specifically the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation had given a grant to Dunbar and Oaks and the Garden and Landscape Studies Program through their Architecture, Urbanism, and the Humanities Program to think about urban landscapes um, and the histories and narratives of urban landscapes in particular. So... River Cities, City Rivers is literally taking that. It's thinking about an urban environmental history, um, right? So where, how do cities arise and get developed uh, next to rivers? It's a trope we all know, right, that um, cities like to be near water. Um, but at the same time, from an ecological perspective, how, how do rivers shape those cities and how do rivers get shaped? So thinking about that and then also bringing together the the idea of historians and practitioners together, which was part of the larger Mellon Project at Dunbar Oaks, is thinking about how the two um, areas of knowledge and the people who practice them could come and enrich each other's understanding. And as I always like to think when we do, you know, the best collaborative work is when you do something that neither could do alone. Um, and that 's what we sought to do in this river city, city rivers, not unlike rivers and cities, neither of which could do what they do alone
2: <laughs> oh that's a, that's a good metaphor uh, so uh what yeah to think about that what what is yeah. a river city so a river city is really
0: a city that is deeply embedded engaged in the sight of a river, so you know at, at one level tricia it's just a, a city that arises next to a river, so if you think of the Nile and um, Cairo, or if you think of Rome and the Tiber, or um, Paris and the Seine, or, um, you know, New York and the Hudson. So these are all cities that are long rivers. Um, but I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, we were trying to push that and remember that these aren't just cities that happen to be near a river for convenience but they are really cities that are shaped by the river. And that's why we then also flipped it around to say city rivers thinking about, so if we think of the city as a river city, so a city that's defined by its river and its relationship to the river, we can also think about the river as it's defined by the city. Um, And it's defined and developed um, by the city and its shape and form. Uh, And the things that we do to rivers to, to make them, perform in the way we need to as cities. And frankly, the things cities do to, or rivers do to cities uh, as well, whether it's flooding or changing course or drying up or any number of things. So it's, it's that dynamic relationship between the place, the landscape. And I guess I'd add Tricia here, because this is a landscape architecture discussion. It's really also thinking about rivers as part of landscape and uh, Delib de Kuna has done a great book called Wetness and this idea of um, we, draw ma- we draw rivers. Don't worry, this is a short tangent. We draw rivers as lines on maps, but rivers are never just simple lines. They're not like a highway where they stay in place. Rivers move, expand and contract, dry up, flood. Um, so thinking about rivers as a dynamic landscape.
2: Wait, oh, I just re- learned recently that actually... Uh, the Dutch, uh, the word landscape, uh, the origin of it is mountain and water. That yeah. Is, yep. That is landscape. Yeah.
0: Yep. And and it's an important piece because we've come to so simplify it. We think it's only that hard land under our feet that's permanent, um, which is a total falsity because, A, it's not. It's all of it. But also little land under our feet is that permanent. And those of us who live on, you know, earthquake faults know that those of us who live in flooding zones know that um, in erosion zones know that. Um, so it's, it's an important reminder that land is dynamic and it's everything from the middle of the ocean to the tips of the mountains, to the peaks. Sure.
2: Mountains under the mountains, under the water. Yeah, better. exactly. So exactly. we'll start with the first one. Uh, flood, Adaptive Landscapes of Cities in a Lower Yellow River floodplain in China. Uh, Why China? Where did you go there? What did you learn?
0: Well, so we got 187 submissions for the conference that we hosted. Um, And that number sticks in my head because it was a lot to review and there was a lot of amazing work. But what it gave us the opportunity to do is really think about... We could not, there's no way we could be a comprehensive book. This was not going to be a book that was going to cover every city river and every river city. That would be impossible and and not very interesting and and way too big. So what were we going to do? We were going to do different time periods, different geographies, different approaches. And of course, because I am who I am, I said, yes, let's do all of those. (laughs) Uh, So we looked for projects that were in geographically different places, um, temporally different places, different time periods, and had different approaches. And the one on the Yellow River offered, Dr. Zhang offered a a remark, I think it's a fantastic essay. It's why I enjoyed putting it. They're all fantastic, but this one I really enjoyed because I think it gets you right into this idea of how much... um, a big river like the Yellow River, which many of us have heard, you know, it's one of the big rivers of the world, um, actually affects the ground that it flows through. So it gets to that idea of rivers are dynamic. And then as, as um, Chinese residents tried to shape the river to fit their city and their city to r- shape their uh, river, you know, sediment comes and the river floods and you gather sediment, you have to do anything. So you end up with these wetlands and these ponds in cities where the river once was and has now moved and the city has moved in. So you get this incredible dynamism. Um, And that really article really, to me, highlights this, the ambiguity of what we think of as land and permanence. And somehow again, um, questioning this idea of urban land as permanent, and but also urban land is somehow not about nature. And you start to think about rivers and urban landscapes, and you realize, of course, that urban landscape is as dynamic as, as all natural land. So the this one, both a big river in China, a floodplain, but a particular cultural response. Um, I think some remarkable maps and, and images that that brought a lot of the issues that we were exploring right to the fore. And then just, you know, this deep history that this is over a long period of time um, that you see these changes and you see people adapting in different ways. And then the land, the topography changing um, in different ways. So you also get, you get a different place geographically in this essay, but you get a long period of time, which was fun to do because some of the other ones, like the one on the Agropolis is a very particular point in time, whereas the China, the Yellow River is a long spread. So you also see history as sometimes picking a moment, right? The, the moment um, that Florence Nightingale, you know, was, was taking care of soldiers, or it can be the longer history of how nurses, you know, t- take care.
2: That's true. Well, what did they, um, how, did, how did they use space in China? Did they do it differently than other civilizations? Because, yeah, it's a very ancient civilization. Uh, what did um, they do well? What did they not do well? So
0: what I would say, what they, what this, well, so that is a bigger question, and that's a whole book in and of itself. But, but I think what we see here is a culture that worked um, in partnership, in collaboration with, and and I don't want to say in harmony because this isn't sort of a you know they they knew nature and did it all in ways that worked out perfectly but they understood the forces of the river and its um, the timing and sequence of its flooding the nature of its flooding what it was going to do what sediment and they responded to that in ways that could allow them to then build their city in a relatively safe way to prevent floods but also to use the sediment then. As good agricultural land to discharge um, extra flooding waters when the river did build up. So they're, they're using deep knowledge. Um, and I suppose it's not, This certainly not the only culture, lots of cultures have done that. But I think sitting here in the 21st century in North America, Uh, a lesson that many of our cities have not learned is how to work with the natural systems. We tend to have a much more engineering response of, you know, put up a huge dam and we'll divert the river or we'll totally drain the Colorado river. Um, We'll control it entirely. And I think what you see along the yellow river on these cities is actually much more an attempt to work with the processes in place um, and, uh, and figure out how to work. And then yet sometimes, and this is part of the essay, sometimes having to abandon the old city because it became inundated. And so they have to move to the other side of the river and start to work with that. Um, so that adaptability and resilience of being able to move around and respond, I think has been an important, I, again, I think of today when we're talking about places, the, the cities along um, climate change and waters rising challenges, we're often uh, it is often suggested that ideas like moving a city or moving people is just inherently impossible, although we've been displacing communities right, for a long time. Um, oh. I think what you see in China is that is that ability to say, OK, this isn't working over here. Let's move over here. We've learned this lesson. Let's redo it over here um, and and moving. Different from displacing because we're not just moving people and not caring where they go, but actually literally reestablishing the city in a different place.
2: Oh, well, that's a good point. I was thinking of like um, Hurricane Sandy and how it impacted Mm -hmm. uh, the Northeast and they were like, oh, we don't want to move. But, you know, sometimes just gotta be resilient, maybe.
0: And and sometimes moving, you know, I, I think we sometimes set it up like somehow moving is abandoning and is therefore failure. Rather than moving might be a strategically um, thoughtful and proactive response and so that one can move in a thoughtful, planned way and create a new place that provides in the way that needs to be provided for rather than a, you know, I don't think it's a, we either succeed staying here or we failed and that duality. Um, I think it's a false one. And I think it's one that climate change is really going to threaten us or challenge us to really think more deeply about. Um, And I, you know, um, this didn't so much come up in the in the China essay, but I think it's important as we bring it to our current issues. When we think about all the ways in which different kinds of communities have been impacted and what some people have called uh, the racial race. Racialization of topography or topographic racism: how we put certain groups of people in more vulnerable landscapes, um, in flood zones. Um, we're going to have to think very carefully about how we uh, we imagine where communities can go, and that certainly right came up in the ninth ward in in New Orleans that was particularly devastated. Um, and I, we don't we don't always. Go into it with the, as much thought and care and justice as we need to. And as we think about, okay, if that wasn't a good place or is no longer a good place for a city to be because of the habits of the river, um, where might we move them and what what would we do in this new place? Or is it a matter of we engineering the river so that we can make that original place healthier and safer and better?
2: Well, I guess that kind of goes to landscape architecture. Yeah. Yep. And, and also yep. too, yeah, seeing it as an opportunity and not as a, you know, it's not yep. a failure. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to see as another opportunity and yep. uh, a chance to do it better. Yep. 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 So, so, uh I like to, I, I, I love Rome. Everybody loves Italy. Um, you've got the soft core city of ancient Rome and the wandering, wandering Tiber. I uh, <laughs> where yeah. <did> it wander? <laughs>
0: Yeah, so this is, you know, there is a great 1930s map of the Mississippi River and all of its various uh, paths that it's taken over hundreds of years. And what you really, you look at that map and I show it to any student and I say, is this where you build a city? And everyone says, no, you know, because the Mississippi has moved all over. But we tend to, and it gets back to this comment about, um, from Dacuna, that we tend to draw rivers as lines on maps. And th- that's an old tradition. And, and what uh, Raven, Dr. Taylor shows in this is that the, the great map of Rome also showed the Tiber River as a line. But if you actually look archaeologically at the ground um, and at the water's edge and the levels of wetness and dryness on the edge, you start to realize that that line has actually rarely been a static line. It's been a movable line. And he points to one place where the the line, the so-called line, in fact, has wandered significantly over its whole width to one side um, over history so that a whole wharf gets essentially washed out. And another part that used to be wet is now dry and can have a wall. Um, so that, that, river that we think of as this static line and this edge in the city has actually been this dynamic force along its edges. And this is a river that we think of today as very canalized. It's got walls all along its edges. We think of it as static, as it being there. Um, And the ancient maps show it also as a line. So there's been this assumption that it's always been this line, right? It's always been in this place. Um, So it's exciting work to realize, oh yeah, even that seemingly solid river, right? Which is a odd combination of terms, but that's often how we think of the river as this solid black line um, or blue line on the map has actually moved and changed. And that meant that the city had to respond and the architecture had to respond. And we don't even ask those questions often along river fronts. We, we imagine that, that that ancient wall is there because it's always been there because the river has always been there. Um, and to start reinterpreting it and saying, well, actually, that wall was put there because this other wall was washed out because this other wharf, in fact, went underwater. So that was was fun. And, you know, you think of Rome as a place that we must know everything there is to know about Rome by now, you know, given how many books on Rome, there must be entire libraries filled with. um, And yet, when you think about, to get back to the beginning of this discussion, when you think about the interest in urban environmental history, the interest in the history of the place and its cities, we realize even in a city like Rome, there's still a lot to be learned.
2: Oh, yeah. And I, I love, since this is a, a listening medium, I, I love all of your, your maps and such in here. So um, I had to think about, it. yeah, we always do kind of just draw like a little line for a river uh-huh. and don't really uh-huh. think anything else about it but, Uh um, that
0: kind of gets us in trouble. It does. It does. Cause then we think we can live along the river and, and everything will be just fantastic. Right. And the river will stay and then it floods or dries up. I wish you remember that, um, you know, the Colorado river drying up by the time it meets the Mexican border, uh, poses significant challenges. So it's, uh, we tend to think of floods are more dramatic, um, actions on rivers parts but drying up can also be a major challenge and and i'm not a big fan of the term natural disaster because much of those disasters are actually part of natural systems um but they certainly can be human disasters if you if you if you depend on the water for agriculture when it dries up um that's as certainly as damaging as as a big flood
2: i'm sure just like uh just even coastlines along the united states it's. uh well, I used to do beach portraits for in photography, and uh, you know, when you go out there every day and you see it, it, how it just moves in and out, pretty, pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just the natural part of what happens,
0: right? Right. Even tides, you know, I'm often amazed by how little we we understand and design around tides. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation, but. Um, you know, tides are pretty dramatic and, and the big tides and the shallow tides and the changes of the seasons and the years. I, we go out to Cape Cod every year and there's actually this fantastic map somewhere on the web of the changing shoreline of Cape Cod. And as somebody who's been going out there for lots, let's just say lots of decades, um, it's amazing how much it's changed and once I looked at these maps, I was like, "Oh right, I do remember back when you could go to Longnook Beach, and it you had this much space between the dunes and the, and the tides, and now you only have that." But it's incremental, so you don't necessarily notice it until you see these big maps. Anyway, that's a whole tide tide question, but yeah, uh,
2: wait, wait, it's another book.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is another book. <laughs> uh,
2: so how can how can uh, what are the designers? how can they, um, when you read this book and you, you realize that the rivers, yeah, our whole planet, everything about us is very dynamic. It's always moving. It's always changing. Um, how can they do better design understanding that?
0: So really the, the, the answer to is design for change, right? So that we tend to, and this comes out of architecture and engineering, um, it is fairly commonly accepted that a design design, you know, you design a cup and the cup is a cup and, and it holds coffee or tea or whatever, but it looks the same, whether it has tea in it or coffee in it um, or water or, or um, and, but we design an object, right. And, and you can identify that object and, and the object has a certain lifespan, um, right. We don't expect a cup to necessarily last a hundred years. Um, it might get broken. Landscapes are not static in any way, shape, or form. they're not static for two, 22 seconds. Um, you can't You can't depend on any permanence in landscape. Now, I could argue you actually can't expect um, permanence in architecture, but because of time scales, buildings often look like they're not really changing, right that you can The aging of a building can be more incremental. Landscape is different, right, from the morning when there's dew on it to the afternoon when the sun's been shining all day and the wind's been blowing and it's bone dry, Um, it's different from season to season. So landscape is inherently dynamic. And I think one of the big challenges we've had is for all sorts of historical reasons, we've taught landscape architecture as if its goal was like the other design fields to design something static. This is the design. Even if it's Olmstead's, this is the design and you won't get there for 50 years, but then many would assume, but once you got there, right, you would keep it. Um, And yet anybody who... Gardens knows that there's never a moment when you can say, okay, this is it. The garden is perfect now. Freeze. Um, so the big thing is you have to design for change. So that's the first. The second piece is that you have to design for unimaginable change. And I don't necessarily mean bad. I mean, things that we don't yet know will happen or we're not sure. So we can do scenario planning. We can say, if, if the waters rise this much, then this is likely to happen. So we design for that. But, um, you know, one of the things I say about park design a lot to students is we have to design parks for activities that we have no idea uh, what they're like for sports that we've never heard of and never played. Um, So to me, and to me, this is not an impossible task, but an incredibly exciting task and why we need really good designers with amazingly rich imaginations. How do you design a place? How do you design the edge of a river uh, for human habitation and ecological health and flora and fauna and the river getting bigger or the river getting smaller or the river moving Um, people moving, all of these changes, uses of the river that we hadn't imagined. Um, You know, I I think of, there's a wonderful book by a woman named, scholar named Christine DeLucia at Williams who wrote about memory lands and King Philip's war in New England. And don't worry, this has a segue to rivers. There's um, along the river, some of the indigenous tribes fished and built weirs and built um, fishing nets and various ways to fish over the seasons. And they learned how to adapt with the river and, and these constructions. And then colonialists came in and they built dams and bigger dams um, and lost the fish um, and tried to keep the river in its place so it wouldn't flood and lost lots of history, but lost lots of performance of the river. So as we see things like dams being brought down today um, and indigenous tribes helping to teach us about what the rivers and the water bodies once held. Those are the things designers should be thinking about, not how do we stop it, how do we stop the river from moving, but how do we design so the river can move? It gets to an article right at the end, an essay in the end here, right, which is make room for the river in the Dutch cities. How do you actually make room for the river to move? And what does that mean for a designer? So I think it's it's what makes landscape architecture uh, unique and incredibly exciting and powerful. because we actually have the skills and the capacity to design for those changes and those unknown changes.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Well, that uh, let's come back here to America. Yeah, that's okay. a good segue to uh, Los Angeles. And uh, yeah. look at these—you got some great pictures here in this book too. And I'm looking at the uh, page one sixty-three, and it's the view of the Fourth Street Bridge and the dry Los Angeles River. Can you? What can you tell us about uh, the Los Angeles River? And uh, yeah, that's so- a, that's been a problem.
0: It has been. It's been a problem, but it's also been an amazing. So Los Angeles River is right. Why we made a a city there? Um, Because in fact, getting having fresh water as well as next to an ocean. So uh, Los Angeles is not the only city. There are many cities that are right where um, rivers come into oceans or or seas. Right, large. bodies of water. So it's an ideal place in many ways because of the river. And because of the river there, they could irrigate land and um, uh, rich soil and they could transport. Uh, Rivers are amazing for transportation. Um, And yet it also posed some huge challenges like flooding. Um, It didn't always behave the way, and it flooded actually in dramatic ways. Um, much of that landscape in Southern California is very dramatically wet or dramatically dry. Um, and so they started engineering it and they started also engineering it all upstream as well, which of course made things like some of the floods even worse because water didn't have a place to go. Um, so you get, you get this combination of, of a river being why people settled there and then being also the biggest danger posed, the very people who settled there. And in fact, I I highly recommend, there's a great book, um, Cadillac Desert, uh, that is about the history of of rivers and water power in California and the West. Um, And it talks a lot about this dichotomy of the Los Angeles River as this incredible gift and the reason a city could be built and incredible danger and threat. Um, So you get the city that decides then, oh, for all sorts of reasons, um, some of them about flood safety, some of them about irrigation and irrigating very large farms uh, farther inland, um, some of it about politics. And, you know, like all places, this is not um, minus uh, serious politics and graft and corruption and all sorts of things. But they try to totally engineer the Los Angeles River, right, and put it in a big concrete uh Canal, concrete stream, and you know we see it in movies. Um, oh, what's what's the big movie where they do the the race down? Oh, well, I'll think of it in a minute, but the, where they race down the, the LA, down the canal, the concrete walls of the um,
2: LA. River. Oh, there seems like there's so many movies. That I know.
0: Yes, I, I can see this one in my head. but So the, the, the concrete, and then it turns out that doesn't actually really take care of the problem either because you still have you still have water coming down from the mountains um, that has to get dealt with. You get increasing irrigation, so sometimes it's a totally dry, sometimes it's flooding. And so this, this story, and then we have two essays on, on the L.A. River in this book. The first one by a designer, Alex Robinson, and Victoria De Palma, a historian, Um, that took our challenge to bring history and design together that really think about the history of the Los Angeles river and these various approaches to it. And then how designers and engineers responded because they, they, it's not always been a ubiquitous one, one response, but they responded in various ways and they tried to ameliorate in different ways and, and create things. And where does it get us then finally today? Um, to this river that is at sometimes disappearing and gone and there's no water and sometimes flooding. Um, And then later it's a piece um, by the office of Mia Lair to talk about then where, where has all that gotten us today as designers and as a city and as a public, how do, how does, how do the people of Los Angeles think about their river. Um, what's amazing for me is a river that's been such an important part of the very reason they're there. Many Los Angeles residents have no idea uh, that the river was ever important. Or they, if they do know about it, they just know about it as, as a flooding risk and a, um, you know as a bad thing um, instead of as this incredibly important resource uh, for the city. As a whole, so yeah, the Los Angeles, and what's exciting to me about that project also is that it's still in process, right? We're still trying to figure out um, what we're going to do with this river, and and how do you bring how do you bring a, a river back, um, but not just you can't you can't restore. I, I guess I want to be really clear: you can't restore a river. You can't restore a landscape to some previous time. It would be like saying, Tricia, I just want you to go back to being five years old. Um, we're just going to, you know, we're going to shorten you up a little bit and and make you five again. You can't do that. And you can't do it with rivers either. Um, and you can't do it with landscapes. So how do we take this river and think about a different kind of future uh, that's ecologically healthy, but also serves the city, serves the cultures along the river, engages people in their landscape mm-hmm and genders, a sense of stewardship, so people understand why it's important to take care of their rivers um, and their landscapes. Um, and I think that's that's still in process. So that, that was fun to be able to talk about the Los Angeles River because it is still in process and um, still yet to be determined.
2: Yes, I was about to ask you, so uh, what is the current uh, plan for the uh, river?
0: Well, last I heard, you know, to be honest, I have not looked very recently. But last I heard, you know, Frank Gehry got given sort of oversight of the whole piece. Um, and I, I don't think it'll come as any surprise to anyone that I have serious concerns about an architect um, overseeing a river project. Because it's, you know, rivers, landscape is all dynamic and changing, it, but rivers are particularly. So, so that concerns me. Um, on the other hand, different landscape architecture firms have been given portions along it to design. And I think the idea is to try to sort of do it both piece by piece and then integrate it into a whole. Um, but that's easier said than done. Um, so it's, it's all puns intended. It's a fluid process. Um, And so we'll have to so I don't know, we'll have to see where that goes. You know, I I suspect that if we continue to understand climate change as the significant issue that it is, we will start to look at things, systems like rivers and like the Los Angeles River and its delta and its source and the whole system that it goes through, right? Because Los Angeles River doesn't just arrive in Los Angeles out of nowhere. It comes comes from the mountains um, and the water, uh, that we will take that seriously and realize that it has to be thought of in a holistic manner in a far larger region um, and begin to think of it again as a dynamic design um, rather than a set of insertions or architectural um, constructions.
2: Well, that leads me to another great city, Narlands. That's how yeah. we say it, Narlins, yeah. and uh, uh-huh. the Delta. That's it, not New Orleans, New Orleans. No. Um, uh The Delta City, you know, that's a that's an old city too, built on the uh, well. It's it's a river, but it's also you know the Gulf of Mexico. How how is this one different?
0: So this one is different because, and this one was interesting to me, and remember that we're doing this book um, not that long after Katrina. So thinking about how Katrina... Both revealed yet again, right? As a historian, I can't help but say, you know, yet again, the power of the river and the power of water and natural systems, no matter how many levees and dikes and dams and canals that we construct, um, the power of it. But it also, not unlike the pandemic we're in now, also really highlighted the social inequities and injustices, um, the racialized topographies that we, Um, enact, and all the ways in which we have built cities and dealt with um, natural systems in unequal ways and with unequal care. Um, And so this was a really important city that had gone through a major disaster, the um, major occurrence Katrina. And getting again, a, this is the other pair of historians, Carol uh, McMichael Reese as the historian and Elizabeth Mossop as, as a designer, um, to think about what Katrina uh, meant to the city as it rethought how it uh, deals, not just with its river, but its larger urban landscape. Where Where is it the people live? Uh, where can they live? Um, what is it neat? Need- needed to be done to allow all people to live in health and, uh, with, with a just, um, and equitable plan for all people. So I think it was a great way of thinking about this complex. So ecologically incredibly complex, right? The, the amount of water, the movement of the Mississippi river, uh, the movement of the lake and the water and the ground level, um, the land, the instability of land, how much of uh, New Orleans has been um, created land, as with many of our cities. You know, we we come to a city today and we assume that land has always been there. And more often than not, uh, there are huge parts of what used to be waterfront that um, are now, you know, that used to be in underwater that are now built up as land but then also mixed with these social cultural issues of who lived where and what was the history. And then how did you look at those issues and, and bring them to the forefront and to the table, as you thought about master plans and re-engineering the river and re-engineering the city that it was, it's not, this is not a project just for the core of engineers to figure out how to build better or bigger dikes that this was, that's part of it. Um, part of it is thinking about how to live with the river, make room for the river, as I mentioned, with the Dutch cities. But it was also very much a social cultural issue of thinking about the disparities um, of how different communities and where they lived and and the ways in which we steward the lands and the places in which those people lived and our communities lived. And so how do we rethink those um, in combination with one another um, and work. So that was, that was an exciting, that that's one of those essays you I wished could have been twice as long, <laughs> um, because I think they brought so many different issues to the table, um, historically. And then again, to having a historian and designer work together, um, Dr. Reese could really talk about a long history of the racialization of the topography and a long history of, uh, where where different communities were allowed to live and encouraged to live and had access to live and the ways in which they were were not protected Um, so all of it coming together you realize it is it was not a simple issue of oh my a city got flooded and now we need just need to rebuild it and put everyone back in place Um, i'd argue it was a moment as is the pandemic today a moment for us to really think much more carefully about what we rebuild back, back to the beginning of our conversation of where should we be living? And then if we are going to live there, how, how do we live there? And how do we steward healthy and just places for all people? How's that for a highfalutin aspiration?
2: I think so. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Melissa, I'm going to jump over here to uh, Lyon in France, but you uh-huh. sk- you skipped Paris. I just realized that. Did oh yes, we did.
0: We we did. We I did skip. Yep. You oh, know, okay. lots of things. I could go on about all the things that we didn't get to do. <laughs> That's oh, okay. We can do an interview sometime about all the cities I didn't get to do. doesn't <laughs> mean do the, book, the
2: cities up. I didn't get to go. I
0: didn't make the We didn't do New York either. That would have been, or Chicago. That would have been.
2: Um, So Lyon was a great city and a
0: great example because that was really about brought in this idea of culture and literature and how a city sees itself, imagines itself both physically, but also sort of in the imagination. Um, So this is a city that has multiple rivers, right? Like Pittsburgh. um, It had multiple rivers that came together. And so Uh, There are parts of its history where it faced the river and parts of its history where it faced away from the river. The river was just background. Then there were times when the river was really an important piece. And you saw that in the literature. So you see it in the the fiction and the nonfiction and the poetry and the art of the city. And so that was a really um, great way to remind us that often how we see the environment or the place that we reside and live and work is so shaped by the photographs and the postcards and the poetry and the fiction and the stories, uh, that we hear about places. Um, so that Mike, Dr. Miller really did, I think, a wonderful job of bringing, uh, that culture, the culture of the imagination, um, in sync with the actual physical environment, both the rivers and then the city and its responses and how those, uh, Come together, and we don't often get that. You know, you'll get, um, you know, writers or poets to write about a place, but then we don't necessarily look at the photographs, or then compare them to the engineering drawings and the physical reality of the place, and pull pull all of those together so i thought this was a wonderful opportunity for someone who really pulled multiple talk about a interdisciplinary transdisciplinary essay bringing multiple sources of evidence together to think about this one city and and i i think i'm going to be i don't um with all due respect, Lyon is not necessarily a famous river city, right? We think of Paris, so we think of Rome or even London. Um, and yet here it is, this remarkably rich history of um, thinking about its river, thinking about its water uh, systems and, and the art and culture that built up around it. I, I love the pictures in that essay and all the different images the poetic images of of the river and the city, and its place and bridges,
2: gorgeous bridges. bridges. Oh, just yeah, it's it's beautiful. And yeah, this is. I mean, if you want to know about rivers, this is the book to get.
0: Yeah, well, it's at least. So I hope you know my my study, my analysis of it, the best books create more questions, right? So I hope that this book uh, gets readers to think about the river cities and city rivers that they know and start to ask much more specific questions instead of what we were all taught in geography, which is cities grow up by rivers because they're good sources of transportation, water, and energy. Um, but instead start to realize there's this dynamic relationship between rivers and cities and culture and nature and our imagination.
2: Oh, that's true. Yeah, because I didn't even know about, yeah, the the, the stories that are written, the literature, the music yeah. even. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I would love to get into the
0: whole thing about music and rivers and water and cities, right? You could do a whole thing. That would be totally fun.
2: (laughs) That'd be cool. So uh, I'm kind of curious about this one. Uh, There's part three. It says, don't go near the water. Why? (laughs) So
0: that is, that takes place in China again. Um, And that is by... By some designers out of the office of Martha Schwartz who were working in the two cities in China uh, along the river and the river is terribly polluted. And what this article, this essay about was really, how do you, um, how do you think, how do you think about polluted waters so, if the, so, it's one thing. Let me back up and be really simple. If the river is clean, um, and pristine, which no city river is, but let's pretend for the moment we found one, um, then. Designing waterfront amenities, designing a relationship to the river is a no-brainer, right? It's very easy. You um, get people down to the river and you get their hands in the river and you laugh swimming. What happens, like most city rivers, when this river is really filthy, when it's, in fact, so polluted it's dangerous? Um, and different – this has arisen arisen historically in large part because we saw rivers as – Industry in the since the last, you know 17th century industrialism, we saw rivers as places of engineering, of places of industry, transportation, energy, right? All of those things I talked about, not necessarily as places of pleasure or um, places where we needed to be stewarding the health of the water and the fish. Um, so this issue is really the challenges for designers when you are working in a city where the river is entirely polluted, where in fact you don't want people to put their hand in the river. Um, So how do you design and put people into a place where they can develop a different relationship to the river without putting their health at risk? Um, How do you then push um, city leaders and uh, various regional leaders to think about the importance of cleaning up those systems So that eventually you could put your hand in the river and, and how do you work around it? Because, um, you know, in some way it might be easier to walk away and say, I I can't design, I can't design a waterfront amenity if the water is in fact so poisonous that I don't want people to pollute it, to put their hand in it. Um, And what Martha Schwartz firm did is said, we're going to really try hard to develop and design these places for future where the water might be cleaned up, where it might not be so polluted. But in the meantime, we also have to address the very immediate challenge that the moment it is polluted, it is poisonous, and you shouldn't put your hand in it. Um, so how do we design for that? And are there ways for us to demonstrate small examples of ways in which design might also be used to actively clean the water? And that's... Um, You know, that's one way landscape architects can be really an important contribution is not just, can you go clean the water and then we'll design down to the water, but could our design on the water's edge engage the water of the river and begin to clean it? And you see this happening um, in the, um, uh, what's the canal in New York that, uh, oh, it's not the Duwamish, it's another, but any, there, there are all sorts of water bodies that have been polluted that have been used as waste streams and we've been thinking about how do we design the edges to actually clean it turns out you can actually clean polluted water um, obviously some pollutants are harder than others but you can and many of the pollutants we uh, let dump into our rivers actually can be complete uh, cleaned through things like plants and what we call bioremediation and phytoremediation and, and various treatments so how do we demonstrate that um, along riverfronts to really inspire people's imagination that that the design could in fact uh, be serving both as a public realm but also as a as a water treatment, uh, not unlike swales. Those swales are a much smaller scale. Um, so that was what this was, and really thinking about these riverfront projects and the role of landscape architects to to face the realities of what the projects that they're truly given. Because it would have been easy to to do this whole book on either successful projects where we could say, and in the end we had this and it's fantastic and perfect. Um, or to just talk about history and sort of stop 50 years ago so that we don't have to deal with the present. But through New Orleans, um, through the Dutch project, through this project, I think we... We gave ourselves a challenge to come right up to the present and say, and these are the challenges we're dealing with today, and we don't necessarily have the answers, but we can at least start to lay out and frame the questions in really important ways.
2: Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, the last one in your book, and I think this is a good one to end on, New Landscapes for Dutch River Cities. Now, the Dutch, they've, they've been at this for a long time. Um, yeah. Have they, figured it, have they figured it out? No. they are still getting there.
0: Um, you know they. I mean, they're they're right in this. Really interesting that they have never made any qualms about the fact that most of their land is reclaimed, right? It's reclaimed from wetlands. Um, so their project make make room for the river um, is really about preventing flooding and increasing safety, but also environmental quality. So it absolutely segues in with the um, project in China. And the idea is how do they rethink even their use of dikes and dike systems um, to think about the health of the river and room for the river to move? So, again, what what the Netherlands has realized with rising waters is they have begun to map areas that are going to have to be, um, the people are going to have to be moved you know, this gets back to the beginning of our conversation of being resilient and flexible and realizing there are times when, um, despite all your efforts, this land is going underwater. Um, and so they've begun to map. And the idea is, as they move people, rather than just move them to somewhere else where they might have to get moved again in another generation, could we reestablish and rethink the engineering of the rivers to actually leave rum? For rivers to change, leave rooms for rivers to be dynamic, and for our communities to then be able to be more resilient and dynamic. And working with those systems together. Um, and to me, it's not so much that they've come up with you know the the silver answer, but that they realize that if they do come up with the answer, the answer is flexibility and resilience and having to work with systems and really think. The other thing they do here is they really think on a big system. So this isn't about, well, how does, you know, the Los Angeles river, just as it runs in the city matter, they're looking at a much larger region, right? Uh, The much larger the, all of the Dutch rivers and their cities together and thinking about how do we think about the whole system and approach that in a more resilient and more flexible and um, responsive manner um, so that you start to get these uh, large scale uh, projects that are thinking together, which again, when you think about rivers, you have to do that because the river brings whatever it's been introduced into it above you down, right? They, they move things fast. And so if you don't, when you change it up river, right, you're changing it down river. Um, so uh, same goes for land. So they've done, and they list, you know, all the menus. The other thing they've done in here, which I think is great is again, to get back to that, if, if they, have a great idea about flexibility. Their answer is in just flexibility in one thing. it's about deepening riverbeds. It's about removing some obstacles, re- lowering some floodplains so they can be more easily flooded and hold more water, high water channels, dike relocations, different storage ideas. They realize it's a whole menu of of measures and approaches, and that you need to think of these as a menu but also as a menu regionally so that you're putting, in the right menu item in the right place and that it's working in collaboration with the other selected menu items you know it's kind of like it's probably a silly analogy but i think of it um, for anybody who cooks a lot you know when you do a whole meal with multiple courses you're thinking about how each individual dish needs to be wonderful and delicious and beautiful right but you also want it to all fit together you want you want a sense that there's a thread of that whole meal, not just that I, I gave you my twelve favorite dishes in no particular order.
2: Yeah, because all the all the spices. must be lunch time. <laughs> <laughs> hungry. <laughs> we just made Everybody hungry on the chairs listening yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that sounds uh, you can go in a whole urban garden city thing with beside yeah, rivers yeah. too. Yeah. Um well, uh, Thaisa, you know, thank you so much for being here today. I, I know you've taken a lot of your time and it's it's a pleasure to have you on the show again. Uh, what can you tell the audience about uh, any new projects you're working on now?
0: Yes. Yeah, so what I'm actually working on now is thinking very much about the history of our cities and our uses of land and intersections with uh, race difference, identity, how do we, you know, it gets back to the, the racialization of topography. How does our history inform how we've come to live where we are and invest where we do and how we might reimagine, you know, as always, I'm a historian who thinks about history as a way to reimagine the future. So if we can better understand, um, why and where um and how people have lived in different cities and developed cities in those particular landscapes that maybe we can imagine a healthier and more just future.
2: Oh I think that's a perfect note to end on right now with uh with our current uh, yeah. COVID pandemic. Yeah. Well it's again go ahead. No,
0: just it's such important work. I feel this um Both honor that I can do it and and also this incredible need right now. Um, And I wish I could produce the work faster because, boy, do we need to know more, to move forward better.
2: Uh, That's what this this podcast is all about, getting it out there. Yep.
0: Thank you, Trisha.
2: Well, again, I want to let everybody know so they can can run out and get this book quick. It's uh, River Cities, City Rivers. Published by Dumbarton Oaks in 2018, and Thaisa Way is the editor. And again, uh, thank you for listening today. This is Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini series in landscape architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening today.